The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Presidential Friends. Everyone needs a good buddy, especially when the weight of the nation is squarely on your shoulders. Well, sure, presidents have cabinet members, advisors, and pollsters to help them work through problems, but the unfiltered advice from a trusted friend may be the most valuable counsel a chief executive can get. We'll get to know the pals to the POTUS throughout history and how they use their unique relationships to influence positive change in our exceptionally complex world. That's coming up on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us get into the complicated but essential relationships between a POTUS and a confidant is best-selling author Gary Ginsburg. He's more than qualified to speak about personal relationships in the White House. He's been in the building firsthand and witnessed these friendships and studied them throughout the history of the office. He's written a terrific new best-selling book called First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. If you're interested in getting a copy, which we think you should, it's a great book, we'll link to the title on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Gary, we appreciate you joining us. I guess this means you're now a first friend of American POTUS. Is that right? <laughs> it's, it's a great honor to be a first friend of your podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, Gary, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed First Friends so much. And in that book, you describe nine relationships between a president and a close friend. Tell us, how did you define friendship? And then how did you choose those specific relationships? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to define friendship in a way that would make the book feel fresh. So I really tried to avoid relationships that for the most part were already part of presidential li literature. So I defined first friends as people who are neither close family members or members of the president's staff, because you know I think we all agree that our relationships with our family are by nature different than our relationships with our friends. And I think in politics, staff, you know, people whose jobs depend on their relationship with the principal, who serve at the principal's pleasure, also have by nature a different kind of relationship. So I really excluded those two categories so that the friends could be pure friends hmm. and not a first wife or a chief of staff. So then in, in terms of the nine that I chose, first of all, I wanted to choose friendships that kind of spanned the entirety of our country's history from its founding up through to the present. So um, I started with Madison and Jefferson and two of our founding fathers, and I ended it with Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan. And um, with Clinton and Jordan, I, I did that in part because I had witnessed that friendship. And I was also able to ask President Clinton, a man who had numerous first friends and had probably the greatest capacity for friendship of any of the 45 men who've occupied the office, I was able to ask him, who is your first friend? 
And uh, he told me it was Vernon Jordan. So I certainly wanted to do that. Another president who had an enormous capacity for friendship was John Kennedy. I wanted to do one of his friends. I didn't want to do the, the obvious choice of a Lem Billings or perhaps a Ben Bradley. So I asked his daughter, Caroline, whom I've known for, for decades, and I said, who is your father's best friend? And she gave me the novel name, the na a name I really hadn't heard of, to be completely honest, the British ambassador to the United States, David Ormsby Gore. And I think, or at least I hope I show in my chapter how special that friendship was, both on an intellectual level, in terms of the foreign policy advice he gave, as well as on an emotional level, that he really was Kennedy's best friend as was his wife to Jackie in those final years in the White House. Very interesting. I think great choices. Let, let's go back to Jefferson and Madison. I'm going to ask you the same question in some form for each of these friendships. What brought and kept Jefferson and Madison together in such a very close and consequential relationship? Well, I think they came together for two essential reasons. You know, First, I think they genuinely respected and admired each other. But Secondly, I think they both realized to be that, that to be the best they could be, they in a sense needed each other. They needed the best the other could offer to be who they would become. I don't think Jefferson would have been Jefferson without Madison, nor Madison would have been his fullest self without Jefferson. And really, from their earliest days together, beginning in 1777, when Jefferson was governor and Madison was appointed to the governor's council of advisors. I think the two really perfectly complemented each other and were stronger together. You know, they were two very different people, as I write in the chapter, both in style and in temperament. You know, Jefferson, as we all know, was tall and dashing, you know, six foot three, quick of wit. He was idealistic, had big, bold ideas and an equally big personality. He liked to move quickly, make bold decisions. But Madison was the exact opposite. He was five foot four. He was sickly. He was quiet, unsure of himself. But he possessed a brilliant, exacting, pragmatic mind, but somebody who preferred to proceed carefully and cautiously, kind of the opposite of Jefferson. And he also knew how to take big ideas, Jefferson's big ideas, and turn them into actionable ideas So, and, and, and actionable programs. So I think they complemented each other perfectly. And it was this combination that I think was responsible for so many of the core structures of our government. I recall Jefferson writing Madison and talking about the idea of changing the structure of government every generation, not tying the next generation down. Yeah. And, and Madison yeah. being that that practical guy saying, well, that's an interesting idea, but yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. not the most practical thing. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine having to change all of our laws, all of our structures yeah. every 19, I think it was 19 years yeah. is how Jefferson defined a generation. Oh it would gosh. have been utterly impractical. Just a point. wee bit, yeah. <laughs> wee yeah. Bit. Now that yeah. friendship, though, they were the, the perfect pairing, as you say. It was tested, especially during the debates over the ratification of the Constitution. So how did they differ on ratification? And then afterwards, talk with us about how Madison became, post-ratification, the foremost Jeffersonian. Well, the rift you know, between them started almost as soon as the Constitutional Convention ended in the fall of 1787. Madison was really the heart, the intellectual heart of the Constitution that emerged from that convention. And what he does immediately after the convention ends, and you have to remember there was a strict rule on any outside discussion of the deliberations inside that hall. So he has to wait until the convention breaks. And one of the first things he does is he sends a 17-page letter to his best friend, Thomas Jefferson, who was living in Paris, if you remember, during that time. 
and he offers a really detailed analysis of what transpired in Philadelphia. Jefferson responds two months later, and his response really exposes, I think, how differently the two were thinking about the role that a central government, a strong central government would play in the lives of Americans. You know, Jefferson reads Madison's 17-page description of the government, and I think his response was that it was, quote, overly energetic, one that he thought could curtail the liberties that he thought citizens should be guaranteed. Madison, you know, obviously as the author of the document, disagrees. And in fact, if it were up to him, he would have had an even more energetic government that he thought would curtail factions and contain popular passions, is how I think he put it to Jefferson. But what Jefferson really wanted, and what he says in his response, is that there needs to be a Bill of Rights to ensure that individual liberty is preserved. And what I think he described as, you know, the avoidance of a monarchical tyranny that he was most afraid of. But, but you know, this is where they two really, the two then diverge. Madison does not want ratification of the Constitution to be predicated on this Bill of Rights. So their ideological rift definitely widens, but I think their friendship remains as the ratification process plays out. Jefferson starts writing anonymous letters, doesn't put his name on it, arguing for a Bill of Rights. And at the same time, Madison, you know, with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay starts writing the Federalist Papers, which argues for ratification without any additional Bill of Rights. But um, just to make a long, long story somewhat shorter, um, Jefferson knew his mark. I mean, he knew he understood what drove Madison, and he knew at heart what we were talking about earlier, that how pragmatic Madison was. And he was right, because what happened with Madison is he tries to, you know, he runs for the Senate against James Monroe. And back then, you know, the Virginia legislature would essentially vote as to who would be the senator. He loses in part because he's not anti-federalist enough, right? He's not supporting a Bill of Rights. So now, a year later, he's running for the House. And he doesn't want to lose again. And he knows that the only way he's going to ensure he's going to this new Congress is to support a Bill of Rights. And so he comes around to it. He becomes the author, in fact, of 19 amendments that eventually get reduced to 10 and then become enshrined in our Constitution. So in a a sense, Madison becomes not only the father of our Constitution, but the father of our Bill of Rights. And the friendship obviously survives. So let's let's move on. You talk about the the President Franklin Pierce and his friendship with the famed author Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you you rightly say that's the the only one where the friend is better known today than the president. So, yeah, what, yeah. what brought Hawthorne and Pierce together, and yeah. what kept them together as friends? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I had no idea that Hawthorne was best friends with Pierce. And my father-in-law told me I just thought of Nathaniel Hawthorne as that author of Scarlet Letter, which you know I think a lot of us felt we were, you know, totally subjected to. <laughs> but, um, my my sister, who's a, an English professor, says I'm completely wrong about it. So I I, yeah. I owe an apology to Nathaniel Hawthorne. I guess. <laughs> maybe give it another read. Maybe yeah, I don't know. <laughs> another read for sure. But you know, they they were both Northerners who you know crazily supported the institution of slavery. And um, Pierce was one of our. He's both one of our least known presidents. Only 7% of a C-SPAN survey of Americans could even identify Pierce as president. He had a terrible presidency, both personally and um, as our chief executive. But even in his inaugural address in 1853, he says in strong, clear terms that slavery is recognized by the Constitution and 
if I'm correct, he said something like slavery stands like any other admitted right. He was an unabashed supporter of the institution of slavery. And because of that support, he really kind of lit the powder keg that exploded with the Civil War four years after he left office. And he signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, did he not? Correct. That was, yeah, it right. was mm-hmm. authored by Stephen Douglas. He never should have supported it. It abrogated the Compromise of 1850 and the Missouri Compromise, you know, 18, in, the, in the Compromise of 1820. And that was really the beginning of the Civil War with the, with the passage of that act. It really started, it started the hostilities that really never let up until, uh, until the secession at the end of 1860. Do we know how they first met? And, and uh, we do. Yeah, Hawthorne stuck with him through some pretty tough times. He did. And Hawthorne, I should just add, also saw slavery as a constitutional right. And he thought that the abolitionist views of his fellow writers and citizens in Massachusetts would result in the dismantlement of the union. He became as much a pariah in his literary community as Pierce became a pariah to you know his his communities in New Hampshire and you know among citizens who did not support support slavery during his presidency and afterward, they met um, on a stagecoach on the way to Bowdoin College in 1821. Pierce was returning for his second year. Hawthorne was just starting, and like Jefferson and Madison, they were complete opposites in personality and looks and temperament, but it just clicked. And it started a lifelong friendship. And one of the reasons I should add that Hawthorne remains such a, an avowed supporter of slavery is because he was such a supporter of the Democratic Party because he needed patronage jobs that came from his support of the Democrats throughout that period. You know, the Democratic Party basically controlled the presidency almost uninterrupted from Andrew Jackson right through to James Buchanan. And Hawthorne couldn't make a penny from his books. He needed jobs that Pierce provided either through his friends in the Democratic Party or directly from him. And for him to have diverged on such a central issue as slavery would have jeopardized that gravy train that he so needed to eat. So I know they were friends. Do we know if Pierce was a a fan of his writing? Yes, it's it's not clear. I found no, I was looking for that that very question. he was he was such a good friend of Hawthorne's that he had a portrait done of him that hung in the White House for the entirety of his time there. They also, um, you know, they they traveled together. They di- in fact, Hawthorne dies in Pierce's arms essentially at the end of my chapter. He gets sick. They Pierce takes him uh, up to northern New Hampshire to get some 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 uh, fresh air. They check in at an inn. Pierce goes in to check on Hawthorne throughout the night. The second time he walks into his room, he feels his pulse. He realizes his best friend is dead. He opens the pocketbook that's lying next to his bed. And what does he see inside? But a picture of himself that Hawthorne carried with him. And that just kind of, I think, illustrates how close the two of them were. Fascinating. Uh, uh, wonderful stories on a president we don't hear that much about. So was really glad you included that in First Friends. Now, a president we do hear a lot about is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he had only a few close friends throughout his life, and chief among those was Joshua Speed. So how did Lincoln and Speed meet, and what led to their becoming extremely close friends? Yeah. They meet in 1837. Lincoln shows up in town. He's going to start his legal practice. And he needs bedding. And he walks into Joshua Speed's dry goods store. And he says, 
hey, uh, do you have any betting? And Joshua Speed uh, says, yeah, but it's $17. Lincoln does not have $17. Speed says, well, I got a double bet upstairs. Go up and check it out. If you like it, you can stay. Don't need any betting. So Lincoln walks up the staircase, checks out the bed, comes back down and says, Speed, I move. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And for the next four years, they shared that double bed, although I don't think it was a sexual relationship in any way. But they become as close as two men can. They eat all their meals together. They share their deepest, darkest secrets. They share, share their aspirations. They go out and and basically carouse for women in an 18, you know, late 1830s kind of way. <laughs> right. you know, through speed, he meets Mary Todd. But it takes its really kind of um, profound turn in 1841, in January of 1841, when Lincoln had proposed to Mary Todd a little bit earlier, but then has second thoughts, real misgivings, and decides to take it back. At the very moment that Speed says to him, now remember, it's been four years that they are such intimate friends, Speed announces to him that he's moving back to Kentucky to take care of his family and the family's plantation. And those two events put Lincoln into a deep, deep depression, such that he becomes suicidal. And he takes to his bed and Speed ministers to him as any true best friend would. And he has to take away all sharp objects to prevent Lincoln from killing himself. But it was really only because of that friendship that Abraham Lincoln gets through that depression and then obviously goes on to become president-elect. And that's when the story gets really interesting because Speed then reappears in his life and plays a pivotal role in keeping Kentucky in the Union and thereby helping Lincoln to win the war and save the Union. And they, they had had kind of a, um, a splitting apart in, in the interim period there when after Speed goes back to Kentucky, right? They did. Yeah. They did. And in part, they, they, they split apart because of unpaid legal bills. Uh, Lincoln was, I think, annoyed that he had to do all this legal work for Speed and Speed didn't pay him. But in part because they had such different views about slavery. Uh, Speed was a big slave owner. And Lincoln, by the mid-1850s, with the breakup of the Whig Party, starts to really form much more concrete views on slavery and becomes you know, much more virulent uh, in his opposition to it. And he starts to write to Speed. And they have a succession of exchanges around the institution of slavery, which, uh, because of their honesty with each other, I think resurrects their friendship. Well, just think in this case, a first friend who, you could argue, saved the Union by saving Lincoln. Really, I think really that's amazing. right. Yeah. And in fact, he says to he says to Speed when he's on his on his bed and suicidal, he says, "You know, Speed, if I off myself, no one will ever know the name Lincoln." And after he signs the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the things he says to Speed is, "You know, I was worried 22, 23, 22 years ago that no one would know the name Abraham Lincoln when I was in that bed. With the passage, with my signing of this Emancipation Proclamation." Now the world will always know who I am. Yes, very true words. Very true. Yeah. Let's come forward to the uh, the twentieth century, and we talk about President Woodrow Wilson and his friend Colonel Edward House, a very close friendship. So, how did they become friends, and what gave strength to through the years to that close bond that they they formed? Well, interestingly, they only become best friends a year before Wilson is elected president in nineteen eleven. And it was kind of the perfect timing for each. Woodrow Wilson had had a breakup with his 
his really sole best friend in life, a professor from Princeton, who in 1906 voted against something that Wilson wanted to pass at Princeton. He wanted to break up the eating clubs and, 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 and install a new kind of system in the university. And his best friend, a guy that was intimate with him in every way but sexually, votes against him. And they have a nasty breakup such that Wilson's daughter later says that his, her father's two tragedies in life were his failure to pass the League of Nations Treaty and his breakup with Professor Higgin, who, who was you know the guy who broke with him. So Wilson is in desperate need of a new best friend in 1911 at the same time that Edward Howes is looking for both the man and the opportunity to go from being a big deal in Texas, where he was kind of a fixer and a very wealthy businessman who then really wanted to operate on a national and international stage. And he was looking for the candidate to be that man in the opportunity. So they meet in a, in Wilson's, in, in, I'm sorry, in Howes' apartment in November of 1911. And within two meetings, they are best friends, inseparable. And that then carries on for the next eight years until they have a really nasty breakup that then House spends 20 years trying to reconcile. It's a profound story of the rise and fall, really, of Edward House and the role that a private citizen back then could have in the United States government without any accountability. Because at one and the same time, he was the head of the CIA, the head of presidential personnel, the secretary of state, uh, the head of the National Security Council. It was an astonishing amalgamation of power by a best friend that will never be repeated again in American history. And, and what caused their split? I think a jealous second wife, hmm. just to put it bluntly. Yeah. Well, Wilson loses his first wife, Ellen, in 1914. He remarries Edith Wilson in 1915. And she immediately senses the primacy of, of House's role in her new husband's life. And I don't think she likes it. Because he's so reliant on House, both emotionally as well as substantively, he becomes almost a crutch for Wilson. And, and I, I expose a lot of that through the diary entries of House. He kept an exquisite diary throughout that period. And she, the new wife, reads some of the correspondence between the two, and she immediately senses, quote, a weakness in House that she tries to, to, to play on with Wilson to try to convince Wilson that he's obsequious and a weak vessel. And it wears, it definitely, it starts to impress upon Wilson how reliant he is, probably overly reliant. And they finally have this massive break on the platform in Paris, the night of the signing of the Versailles Treaty. And the two never really spoke again. Wilson then dies a few years later, as we know. And as I said earlier, House tries to make sense of it until he dies in 1938. Now, Gary, I spent some time in Hyde Park as acting director of the FDR Library Museum, a wonderful place. So I was especially interested in your discussion of the close friendship between FDR and his cousin, Daisy Sukli. Uh, how would you define that relationship? Was it supportive and platonic, or was there some romantic <laughs> element to it? Do we know? <laughs> well, we don't know for sure. But I think the evidence strongly suggests that in September of 1935, they shared a kiss and probably nothing more. If you watch the movie Hyde Park on Hudson with Bill Murray and Laura Linney, which came out about 10 years ago, 
you would think they were in a torrid affair. I think that was, you know, mythical movie making to generate interest. I don't think you can find any support from the two sources that we have that, you know, give us a really good understanding of the relationship. And that is Daisy Sukley's diary, as well as the 38 letters that were exchanged between them during Roosevelt's presidency. But they were very close emotionally to your larger question. It's hard for me to doubt Bill Murray, but I will. Um, <laughs> so I will ask, how do you think, what did she do on a daily basis to help him deal with what had to be immense pressures of, of the White House? I think to shorthand it, Daisy Sukley was the antidote to Franklin Roosevelt's intense loneliness. Now, I, I know that's hard to understand, A, because he was such a gregarious, hail fellow kind of guy. But you have to remember, you know, he's fighting a depression, not a, you know, a, 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 an economic depression, I mean, emotional depression, and he's fighting a world war. And he's doing it without his wife around the White House, because for the most part, Eleanor is off around the world crusading for his, his, her causes. And his children, for the most part, are either at war or just not interested in being at the White House. So as Roosevelt says to Daisy Sickley one day, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. And he didn't want to be left entirely alone. Just to give you an example of that, he had 22 separate meetings one day in 1944. Now, I don't know about you, but I would want to you know, crawl into my bed and go to sleep at the end of 22 meetings. What did he want to do? He wanted to have dinner alone with Daisy. And that's because I think Daisy Sukley understood him in a way that, that nobody else in and around Roosevelt did. She intuited things that others didn't. She provided emotional comfort. She was inquisitive. She was curious. She had her own particular kind of wit. And he just felt utterly natural and complete in her presence without it, as I say, being sexual. And I, I think um, that Roosevelt historian Jonathan Alter put it to me best. He said, Roosevelt, quote, would have been a less natural, a less relaxed, less natural president without Daisy Sickley in his life. And I think that that's true. And certainly you get that sense from reading Daisy's diary and all the time they spent together, particularly in those last four years of his presidency, she really was the antidote to that loneliness he felt when he was no longer Exhibit A. I will say, I will note that Jonathan Alter has been on American POTUS, speaking with us about his biography of Jimmy Carter. We really yeah, which is that. great. Yeah, really a terrific yeah. book. Yeah. So I've got to admit, let's skip forward to Harry Truman. I, I didn't know anything before reading First Friends about Eddie Jacobson, his close friend. What what made Eddie Jacobson and Harry Truman such such good good partners, good friends? Well, they actually were partners, um, which is interesting. They they, they really they met in 1903 when Eddie Jacobson starts making deposits as a 16 year old at the bank where Harry Truman was a teller. But then they go their own ways until the First World War when they end up in the same field artillery regiment just by complete happenstance in Kansas City. Eddie was a haberdasher. Truman up to that point was a farmer. Basically, he was taking care of his dad's farm. And um, they, they're in the same regiment. And Eddie has a real knack for making money. And what he does is he basically professionalizes that canteen that Truman is in charge of. As such that I think Truman gains an enormous respect for Eddie's business acumen. 
And they go into business together right after the war. They form their own haberdashery in 1920 in downtown Kansas City. It thrives for a year until it goes bankrupt, essentially, in 1922. But in those two years, they formed a really deep friendship. They were both really common folk. They were able to talk pretty plainly to each other. Um, I think they had enormous respect for each other's honesty, integrity. They spent a lot of time together in those intervening years while Truman kind of you know, uh, ascended the political uh, ladder, while Jacobson just essentially continued to sell men's clothing. But their friendship remained. It would really never change from those early 1920s. And then um, it has that climactic moment in 1948, which I think changed history. And I think their friendship is really the best example of how a, how a friendship can change history in the ability of the friend to speak the blunt truth to the president of the United States, which is what Eddie does. All about the recognition of Israel. Correct. Right. And, and Jacobson was a huge supporter of that. How, how, did, how did he talk to Truman about that issue and make his thoughts known? Well, you know, in, in, in 1948, Truman has to decide what to do about the land of Palestine. Uh, the British mandate is running out in May of 1948, and he has to decide whether uh, the Jews should have their own state, should the Arabs that are living there have their state, should it just remain under a UN trusteeship. And he's frankly just exacerbated. He doesn't want to deal with the issue anymore. Uh, Jewish lobbyists had been hectoring him, and he got really perturbed. And by March of 1948, he's had it with the issue. At the same time, Jacobson has become kind of a big believer in the need for there to be a Jewish state. You know, it's three years after the Holocaust. There are millions of Jewish refugees, and he recognizes how important it is that, that Truman support a Jewish state. So he flies halfway across the country one morning and goes in to see his friend, Harry Truman. And the appointment secretary, Matt Conley, knows that Jacobson's his best friend. He says, sure, go in and say, see Harry. He's sitting there. But one thing, do not raise the issue of Palestine. No, I right. not talk about it. So he says, sure, I won't say a word. Walks in. They make chit-chat. And then Truman looks at him and says, well, Eddie, what are you doing here? You've never asked for anything like Why'd you fly halfway across the country? And Jacobson says, Harry, you have to see Chaim Weitzman. Chaim Weitzman was the foremost Zionist of the day. He was sitting in New York waiting to have a really important meeting with Truman to convince him to support a Jewish state. And everybody in America who supported a Jewish state knew that for Truman to support the support it, he needed to see Weitzman and be finally persuaded. But Truman will not see him. So he says, you got to see Weitzman. And Truman says, I ain't doing it. I am sick of this issue. I can't believe you flew halfway around the country to get here to tell me this. You Jews, no, you're never satisfied. Jesus Christ didn't satisfy you when he was alive. How am I supposed to satisfy the Jews? You guys have been hectoring me. You've been embarrassing me, insulting me. And he turns his back, and Eddie doesn't know what to do. He, he knows he can't walk out of that office without getting Truman to agree to see Weitzman. So he looks around the Oval Office, and he sees a little bust of Andrew Jackson. Now, only because he was a lifelong friend of Truman's does he know that Truman's hero in life is Andrew Jackson, and he knows how he thought about Andrew Jackson, how he felt about him. So he says, Harry, I'm looking at this little bust of Andrew Jackson. How would Andrew Jackson react to hectoring from people 
who were giving him a hard time. Would he capitulate? Would he? I mean, would he? Would he be so scornful? Would he be? Would he be so weak? Would he be so weak and and against these quotes? You know, would he be a sissy? I think is the word he actually used. And he said, "Do the right thing. Do what. Do what Andrew Jackson would do." You need to see Chaim Weitzman. You owe it to him. You owe it to yourself. Be the man that you know you should be. So Truman turns his back again, starts drumming his fingers against the desk, turns red-faced, swivels back around after a minute. He says, God damn it, you son of a bitch. I'll see him. And sure enough, a few days later, Weitzman comes down from New York. They have the meeting. And the 11 minutes after the state of Israel is declared in May of 1948, Harry Truman is the first foreign leader to recognize the independent state of Israel. So history has changed with the intervention of a first friend. A hundred percent. In fact, Truman says, but for Eddie Jacobson coming to see me, I would not have done it. And it was the proudest decision he said of his presidency. A great story. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, John Kennedy and his close relationship with David Ormsby Gore, again, like you, someone I had not heard of before before I read your book. They first befriended one another in England in the 1930s, and they had a long, ongoing discussion that you talk about, about the nature of leadership. What were the themes of that discussion, and how did that back and forth between them over the years help build what was a very close friendship? Yeah, so they, they, they meet in pre-war London in 1938. And the debate that was raging then was, what do you do in response to German rearmament that was taking place under Hitler beginning in 1933? And Stanley Baldwin had decided not to rearm Britain during that period because he thought the electorate didn't support it. And so, you know, the Navy didn't get it any stronger. They didn't build up the Air Force. At the same time, as we all know, Churchill was saying, we're asleep. And we are falling desperately behind the Germans. And in 1938, uh, a book is comes out by Churchill, which is all of his speeches during that period. And they start arguing, what is the role of a leader in a democracy? Is it to do the right thing, even if the electorate isn't there yet? Or is it to follow the dictates of your electorate and then hope that they come around to the right decision? So it was a question of whether you'd follow Churchill or if you followed Chamberlain slash Stanley Baldwin, you know the leaders of the then Labor Party who were doing nothing during this German rearmament, and Kennedy was really unsure because a because his father was such an appeaser as the U.S. ambassador to Britain, but his friend David Ormsby Gore was an adamant Churchillian, as were all of David Ormsby Gore's friends who had befriended Kennedy in that period. So they start arguing that in 1938, and that that same theme of the role of a leader plays itself out really over the next 25 years of their friendship, most dramatically in 1963, the final year of Jack Kennedy's presidency, when he has to decide whether to really push for a limited nuclear test ban treaty. And he knows at a certain point in 1963 that to continue to argue for this treaty could jeopardize his reelection in 1964 because the public starts to think that Kennedy is looking weak in the face of the Soviet threat. And it's at that point that Ormsby Gore reprises that debate and reminds Kennedy of what the central role of a leader is, which is to take those bold positions and do what is right. 
And Kennedy comes around to supporting the test ban treaty, becomes its evangelist in chief, really with Ormsby Gore's emotional support as well as intellectual guidance. And it's the last major piece of legislation that Kennedy signs before his assassination. And I think it really does begin the end of the Cold War, which then takes, I would see another 25 years before we finally see the end of it. But it was really the beginning of it, beginning of that end. And backing up a bit from that, Ormsby Gore took a, a big role uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis as well. He did. In fact, um, I begin the chapter on day five when Kennedy gets a call from his brother saying, we've got to make a big decision. You got to come back to Washington. Um, the XCOM has reduced our options to do to two, whether we're going to blockade or bomb Cuba, we need you to come back. So he cancels a full day of campaigning for the midterms in 62, comes back. And one of the four edicts that he issues to his staff is, I want to see David Ormsby Gore tomorrow morning when I'm, when I'm back in the White House. And that began a series of conversations during those final six days uh, or seven days that um, where Ormsby Gore plays a critical role in advising Kennedy on how to navigate that crisis. He, he argues out the blockade bombing question on day six, on day seven, or day eight. He goes over you know, how to sell the idea of this crisis to uh, a skeptical European and American public by issuing satellite photographs. He helps Kennedy message the televised address to the nation that Monday night and then he's critical in setting the appropriate perimeter for the blockade itself. He's the one who spots that it's too far out, it's 800 miles. And he says, we need to give the Russian captains more time to think about whether they want to break this blockade. Let's move it into 500 miles. And it was really at his instigation that they, were, that they, were, they agreed to move it into 500 miles. And he plays a critical role in just being a kind of unseen, unsung advisor to Kennedy through the remainder of those 13 days to get him through that crisis. I was curious, during re- a really fascinating part of, of your book, was there, were there concerns in the U.S. or in the U.K. about Ormsby's role, Ormsby Gore's role during that, during that crisis? Well, not really, because you know Macmillan had been fully read in, and Macmillan, who was the prime minister, was having you know, regular conversations with Kennedy. You know, they had that special relationship was really special during those three years that Ormsby Gore was the ambassador and Macmillan was the prime minister. So the British government was fully read into it all. I think there was, it was unusual that Ormsby Gore would argue for that 500 mile perimeter without any instructions from his government. But I think that Macmillan and everybody in the foreign service and foreign ministry, ministry of state, I'm sorry, that's really the official title, understood the unique relationship that their ambassador had with the president of the United States. And they were reminded of that throughout those two years that Kennedy was president and Ormsby Gore was the ambassador. It's a, it's a, it's a relationship unlike any in American history with, in terms of an ambassador, a foreign ambassador and a United States president. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Now, B.B. Uh, Rebozo's is, uh, I remember hearing about him when I was a kid, a close friend of Richard Nixon, often making head- headlines with his pal. Uh, could you remind us who B.B. was and how these two men who were quite different became close friends? Sure. B.B. Um, Rebozo was uh, a real estate entrepreneur, a high school graduate, 
Uh, his first job was as a Pan Am steward, with, which I think kind of exemplifies his personality. He was an ebullient man who liked to spend time on his boat, liked to carouse Miami nightclubs, liked to have a good time. You know, he was the he he was he was kind of the exact opposite. Talking about opposites to Richard Nixon, who was an intellectual, who was as dark as Rebozo was light. But I think that's why that friendship worked so uniquely, so powerfully, was because they were opposites. And I think that Richard Nixon knew that if it were left to himself, his best friend would have been his yellow legal pad. But he knew that that in order to avoid being too morose, too dark, too brooding. He needed someone around him to keep him from descending into total madness of his own mind. So he chose a friend who was his opposite, who also could sit with him in absolute silence for hours on end, but then know just when to break that silence with the right quip, with the right joke, with the right anecdote, to break him from that kind of brooding morose silence and bring him back into the world. And that was the role that B.B. Rebozo played throughout Nixon's life. You know, from 1950, when they first meet, until Nixon dies in 1994, I think it was. And that first meeting, though, did not go well, if I remember correctly. It did not. (laughs) It did not. And it's kind of emblematic of their friendship, just the the quixotic, quizzical nature of their friendship. You know, uh, George Smathers invites... Nixon uh, onto BB's boat. He comes down uh, right after winning his Senate race against Helen Douglas. He shows up in winter clothes. He goes on his boat. He's wearing long pants and a shirt. He brings on his brings down his yellow legal pad. He sits apart from everybody on the boat, basically riding on his yellow legal pad. He doesn't drink. He doesn't fish. He doesn't jump in the water. He doesn't partake of any of the drinking, any of the kind of carousing that goes on during that weekend. It's so dramatic that Rebozo says to Smathers after Nixon departs, he says, don't ever send that fellow back down to see me again. He was just an absolute bore. What does Nixon do? He goes back to Washington and pens a note to B.B. Rebozo and tells him what a great time he has and how he hopes they can get together again soon. Sure enough, that is the start of their first friendship. Wow, wow. When, it, when he's president, Nixon asked Rebozo to do various kind of behind-the-scenes things. What, what does Rebozo do for him, and how does he get drawn into the Watergate, the Watergate scandal? Well, that's the interesting thing, because you'd like to think that Bieber Rebozo, because of the unique nature of his friendship, could have said no to Nixon when he involves him in his nefarious acts to keep power and to punish his enemies in 1969-1970. And I say that because in 1967, he's the only person really in Nixon's orbit who's telling him not to run for president in 68. Now, Rebozo knows that it's going to be great for him if his best friend is the president. But he also saw the emotional toll it took in 1960 and 62 on Nixon, his wife, Pat, and the two daughters. So he says to him in 67, don't run. Nixon obviously ignores him, runs, wins. But then says to Rebozo in 1969, I want you to raise campaign funds off the books. And Rebozo at that moment could have said, Dick, no, you don't need to do this. You're far too secure as president to resort to these nefarious um, acts. But he doesn't. And he goes out and he basically solicits a $100,000 bribe 
from Howard Hughes, which I write in my book, I believe was the impetus for why Richard Nixon eventually bugged the DNC headquarters at the Watergate in 1972, which led to his impeachment and then ultimate resignation. Whatever happened to Rebozo? Rebozo um, stayed best friends with uh, with Nixon until you know Rebozo died in 1998. You know, lived a very comfortable life. He made a lot of money. Had a big house down in Key Biscayne. He had remarried. You know, he he was he was you know he was more devoted to Richard Nixon than he ever was to a wife. <laughs> um, there was some suggestion that there was a book written in 2011 that asserted that that Nixon and Rebozo were lovers. I, again, I don't see any evidence to support that. But he was incredibly loyal to Nixon right up until the end of Nixon's life. Now, the last friendship I want to discuss with you today is one you mentioned earlier, that of Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan. Uh, can you first remind us a little bit about Vernon Jordan's incredible life story? You know, the best thing I can say about Vernon Jordan's life story is to read his book, Vernon Can Read. It is a brilliant memoir that uh, came out in 2001. And anybody who's interested in Vernon's life should read this, this book. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of a man you know, born into a deeply segregated city of Atlanta, who through his own brilliance as an orator, as a human being, as a student, and then as a lawyer, rises to the absolute top ranks of the civil rights movement. And, and then goes from you know being the head of the Urban League and before that um, the United Negro College Fund to uh, become the foremost lawyer and lobbyist in Washington, but at the same time he becomes the first friend to governor to a governor of Arkansas, and it's that unique friendship that I think really cements Vernon Jordan's central role at the intersection of politics, business, law. Civil rights. I mean, he he was he was really sui generis as a human being, as a civil rights icon, as a power player, and most of all, certainly in my book, as the first friend of the forty second president of the United States. And certainly worked on both sides of the aisle. I had the opportunity years ago to meet uh, Mr. Jordan. He came down to speak for us at the Howard Baker Center, where I was then director of close friends with Howard Baker. I mm-hmm. wonder if I absolutely love Vernon can read. It is a terrific read. I know uh, such a close friend to Bill Clinton. He helped him through a lot of difficult times. How did he help him through the various uh, defeats and scandals that that uh, Governor and President Clinton faced? Sure. Well, I think foremost, when when Clinton lost his reelection for governor in 1980, he was despondent, beside himself, didn't know what to do, was thinking about quitting politics, and um, and Vernon had heard that he was despondent, but had a real interest in Clinton's career. So he calls up Hillary and says, you got any grits down there because I'm coming down and I want to talk to your your husband. He shows up a few weeks later. He walks into the small kitchen of the house that they had moved to after he left the governor's mansion. And over two and a half hours of a breakfast of grits, basically talks him into staying in the game of politics. And two years later, he's reelected governor and 10 years later, he's president of the United States. And I think um, that was emblematic of the role that he played in, in Clinton's political life. You know, He took him to Bilderberg in 1991, which helped convince Clinton that he was presidential timber. Um, he played a crucial role in every personnel decision, every major personnel decision 
Clinton wanted to name him as attorney general. Jordan said to him, as he was chairing the presidential transition in 1992, he said, I can be more valuable to you, more important to you as your first friend than as your attorney general. And over the next eight years, he really was. And just to illustrate on a personal level how important he was, when Clinton admitted to his affair with Monica Lewinsky in the summer of 1998, Hillary was very, very seriously considering leaving Bill at that point. And Clinton turns to Vernon and says, you need to go talk to Hillary and talk while I'm leaving me. And he goes to see Hillary. He has that talk with Hillary. And obviously, she then stayed in the marriage. And the rest is, is history. What, what do you think when, when Jordan first met Clinton? What did he see? What, what, what was there that led him to? Yeah. I think he saw a man like himself, larger than life, uh, huge personality, enormous charisma, quick-witted, funny, great sense of humor, who loved sports and loved politics. They just bonded instantly, as I write in my book. And it stayed. It stayed that way right up, right up until Vernon died this past March. They, were, they remained best of friends. And um, just to understand the depth of feeling, um, one should watch Bill Clinton's final eulogy at Vernon's funeral, which is on YouTube. It's quite moving. All right, Gary, we've talked a lot about these friendly relationships before, during, and after the White House. Now let's get a little more personal and find out which of these presidents we might like to have as a friend. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So to keep it fair, we'll keep these questions to the list of presidents we've talked about today. So uh, Jefferson, Madison, Pierce, Lincoln, Wilson, FDR, Truman, JFK, Nixon, and Clinton. Okay. Which POTUS would be the first one to buy a round of drinks at the bar? Oh, that's easy. Franklin Pierce. No. A, because, <laughs> a, because he was a drunk, right? right. No, one liked, no one liked drink more than Franklin Pierce. You know, his father ran a tavern out of their living, out of their living room back in New Hampshire. And look, let's, let's face it. Pierce dies of cirrhosis of the liver because he was essentially a drunk for most of his life. So he would be the one to pour the drinks. Thanks, Frank. Okay. (laughs) So which POTUS is the friend who organizes everyone else for a get together? You know, that one guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton. Oh, yeah. Because he's the epitome of the connector and the gladander. Okay. So which POTUS is the one you can count on to tell you the hard truth, no matter how much it hurts? Got to be James Madison. Just ask Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Always the one to tell him the hard truth, right? He, he, he had the most precise and thoughtful mind, and he was also the one who would consider every angle to every problem before he ever issued a, an opinion or a command. So which POTUS is the one you want to give the best man speech at your wedding? Uh, it's between Clinton, whom I've heard give a best man speech, uh, and Kennedy. But I'll say yeah. Kennedy because I think he was the most quick-witted funny and probably charming of all yeah. the presidents that I studied. Okay. Ask not what you can give to your husband. Yeah. Ask me. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Gary, on the opposite side of that, which POTUS is the friend you don't want to give the best man speech at your yeah. wedding? You know, that guy. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be Kennedy again, because you just uh, don't know what havoc, <laughs> what havoc we might create with all the bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. 
Uh, I, I could see Nixon standing there with a yellow pad. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That might, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, Gary, what's what's next for you? Uh, well, I'm thinking about another book. I'm playing around with some ideas, you know, again, in the realm of uh, the American presidency. I'm trying to find an equally fresh angle. Um, but I got a couple of ideas and hopefully uh, I'll settle on one and get, get moving on it. And you come back on POTUS and talk about it. You know, I had one other thought. I wondered while you, while you wrote First Friends, did it, did it bring out any points about friendship that maybe you hadn't thought about before or that were magnified for you in terms of your own personal uh, friendships? Well, I think it just reminded me of how important my friends are in my life. I mean, that was kind of the point of the book was, to, you know, I think the reason why it has resonated is that everybody has a best friend or most people have a best friend in their life. And you think about the role that they play in your own life. And then you apply that to the most powerful person on the planet and you can appreciate its importance, you know, and how it can have real consequence for the country, for the world. And I think it just, you know, just kind of reinforced for me how important my friendships are, having lived through nine very consequential friendships. Fascinating discussion. Great, Gary. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank well, you. thank you for having thank me. It's a real, real delight. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Gary Ginsburg for joining us on this episode about presidential friends. More information on his book, First Friends, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have comments on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPotus.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We'd also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Thomas Jefferson, quote, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. <laughs>